Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. We could probably come up with a few ideas as to the differences between pride and humility. But nothing cuts the cake like that which we'll see next in Luke chapter 18, here on Abounding Grace. Polar opposites. It's a wild pendulum swing that we're looking at today. This is Abounding Grace from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Welcome to our program. We're back in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 24 today. Message called the Pharisee and the Publican. It's a stark contrast between pride and humility. And for us as believers in Christ, it's good to understand that humility more so than ever before. With this edition of Abounding Grace, here's Pastor Gary Wagner. If you believe a gospel that says, now to be saved, to have your sins forgiven and be accepted into God's family, to be justified with God, you must believe in Jesus and then spend the rest of your life earning enough points to go to heaven when you die and receive your salvation once and for all. If you believe anything like that, You will not benefit, it says here, from the true gospel. Now, do you think that's an exaggeration? Wait until you hear what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. He says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. No benefit. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, that is, obedience to the law. You have fallen from grace. Now, those are strong words. It says if you are trying to develop and are teaching a gospel that says you must believe in Jesus and then do enough good deeds to receive your salvation and to get in good with God, the true gospel will be of no benefit to you. You have severed yourself from Christ, and as far as your teaching is concerned, you have fallen from Christ and fallen from the gospel of grace. That's why I say to you that those preachers and teachers and books and tapes and DVDs that try to mix faith in Christ and good deeds as the basis of having our sins forgiven and being accepted with God are your worst enemy. And then there's a second reason why these Pharisees are your worst enemies, and that is because all of us, even as Christians, have the sinful tendency to believe them. All of us have a pride in our heart that lies right at the root of all of our sins. It is a sin against which we always fight. And therefore, 
when we hear anything that tries to flatter us, that tries to build us up, that gives us ground to take credit before God and say, in some way or another, we've done something that impresses Him. There's a tendency within even Christians that we must resist because it pampers our human pride. Oh, I'd like to take credit for something. I don't want to go to a church when the preacher's always reminding me that I'm a sinner or where the preacher is always telling me I'm depraved or the preacher is always telling me I should be convicted of my sins and there is nothing in and of myself that I can do. I want to at least do something. I, may, I, I mean, I may not be able to die on the cross for others, but surely there's something that I can take credit for. There's always this tendency within us as Christians to look for some way to take credit for something before God. And that is why Pharisaical teachers and a Pharisaical gospel that mixes faith and works and justification is such a dangerous enemy to you and me. Then there is the Pharisee's prayer. Notice where he stood to pray. He stood in the most public place possible. And probably at that time of the day when most people went, would be present at the temple to see and hear him. And I love what Jesus said in verse 11. Now remember, this is the one who looks at the heart. This is an infallible judgment on this man. This isn't some quick observation. Jesus sees the heart and he says in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. I mean, this man's whole prayer is phony. His entire thanksgiving to Christ is phony. Jesus says, I can see that man's heart, and he is no more talking to God than the man in the moon. He's praying to himself. He's full of a sense of self-importance, and he is conscious of all these people looking at him. And that is what determines how he prays. Let me ask you a question before we go any further. But please, don't raise your hands. How many of you have ever prayed like that? How many of you, when you prayed, were conscious of the other people around you listening? How many of you have ever prayed to yourself, acting like you were praying to God so that others could hear? Don't say you never have. Because we are all guilty of these things. And this Pharisee was just as, if not more, guilty of such a thing. You see, he was under a delusion. Let's read his prayer. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. And, you know, I, I believe I know how this man sounded. I've heard preachers sound this way as well as others who have prayed in public. Have you ever heard a preacher who on Monday through Friday speaks to you in just a normal way, with his normal voice? But on Sunday, he puts on his preacher voice. That's what this man was doing. God, I'm glad I'm not like other people. 
swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithe on all that I get. What is his delusion? His delusion is that he is convinced that he is righteous in the sight of God. And beloved, that is a damnable delusion. That is what people automatically assume today. Oh, I have flaws. I have weaknesses. But I can get God to forgive me. I can make up for my past regrets. And basically, when you get right down to it, I'm accepted and righteous with God by virtue of being a human being who is trying to do good deeds and good things things before his face. And that was the biggest delusion in his life. But he based this delusion on two lies that he believed to be true. The first lie that he took as, as fact is that he is not a wicked person outwardly. He said, I'm thankful I'm not like these thieves and adulterers and unjust people. And particularly, I'm glad I'm not like this contemptible tax collector. We laugh at that, right? Let me tell you what people have told me that have committed immorality when they come for counseling. They've said, Gary, I have committed this act of immorality, but at least I'm not a homosexual. At least I'm not a pervert. I I might be a drunk, but there are people in this world who are a whole lot worse than I am. This Pharisee was saying something like this. I thank you, Lord, that I have not committed the big sins. I'm not a thief. I'm not an embezzler. I'm not all like this wicked, contemptuous tax collector. Therefore, I know I'm accepted with you. Outwardly, I'm just a minor sinner. But whatever you do, Lord, don't look at the state of my heart. Don't look at my motives. Don't look at what's going on in my mind. If you look at my outward appearance, you can see I'm a pretty good guy. So he thought. Then there's another lie that he thought to be true that was the basis for his delusion. He said that, He not only did good works, but he performed far more good works than what the tradition of the rabbis and God demanded of him. He said, hey, hey, look, I don't just fast one time a week. I fast two times a week. And I don't just pay tithes on certain kinds of incomes that is required in the Bible. I tithe on my entire income. The Pharisee said, I have done far more than you have asked me to do, Lord. Do you see what he never mentioned here? He never mentioned the heart of the law of God. He cut the heart right out of the law of God. Not one time in his prayer did he say, Oh God, I love you with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I love my neighbor as myself, even this tax collector. So I ask each of you, are you living under a delusion? Do you think in any way, shape, or form that you are accepted with God because you're not a homosexual? 
because you have never committed adultery. You're not a thief. You pay your taxes. You're basically loyal, honest, and trustworthy, and you have never kicked your cat. You are living under a delusion if you think the standing you have with God is based on anything, anything you have done, or if you think any of the good qualities you have originate with you. Now we come to the publican. Now this man was despised by the Pharisees, and he was despised by the Jews in general because he worked for the Roman Empire. He worked for the oppressors of the Jewish people. He was a tax collector. The The taxation of the Roman Empire was already high, And this man had the authority to charge any interest and fees he wanted to to the taxes that were already levied in order to pay for his own expenses and make a little bit of a profit on the side. So between the interest and the fees of the tax collector and the taxes themselves, people hated the tax collector. But this publican stands in stark contrast to the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood up in front where everyone could see him and everyone could hear him. And verse 13 says, the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast. Now there can't be a sharper contrast. Picture this in your mind. The self-righteous Pharisee head held high, hoping everyone is listening to him. The tax collector, who's standing far off from everyone, can't even raise his eyes toward heaven, beating his chest over and over. Not for show, because he's where few can see him. This is a stark contrast The publican is deeply conscious of the real sinfulness of his life. He yearns for forgiveness. He's deeply convicted of his utter unworthiness before God. He's not even going to draw near to God. He's not going to lift up his eyes into heaven. He beats himself in agony of heart because he is conscious that he is a sinner before God. So he confesses to have no claim on God's goodness. He knows that he deserves rather to be cast out and sentenced to death. But he has come to true repentance. And he cast himself on the mercy of Almighty God. Here is a man suffering intense agony and conviction of sin over his unworthiness. Let me stop and ask you the question that I've been asking myself all week. Have you ever been convicted of your sin like this publican? There's really nothing extraordinary about it. I mean, Jesus doesn't tell us this parable to say to us, boy, this is an absolutely exceptional, extraordinary conviction of sin in this publican, the likes of which you will never see again. That is not the point of this parable. The point is the contrast. This man is experiencing what true Christians should experience. 
this pain, this agony of heart, this sense of corruption and worthlessness before a holy, righteous, just, majestic God. He cries out for mercy. He doesn't ask for anything else. He knows he has no claim on God's goodness at all. So he stands back in the corner in true repentance, in heartfelt confession of sin, in brokenness, with a deep sense of being undeserving of the mercy that he beseeches his God to give him. The publican, by the way, was not exaggerating his sinfulness. There was nothing decent about this guy. What the Pharisees and the Jewish people thought of this guy was absolutely correct. This guy was a cheat. And who knows how much money he cheated from these people. This guy was wicked. He was a lowlife who deserved to be despised by society. He's not exaggerating his condition at all. He was wicked and contemptuous, and he knew it. And he begged God for mercy that he did not at all deserve. He's beating his chest, and as he's doing so, pouring out of his mouth is a spontaneous and unrehearsed plea that obviously flows from a heart filled with agony. Verse 13, God be merciful to me, the sinner. There can be no greater contrast between these two prayers. Here you see the tax collector saying, I come to you with empty hands. Not so the Pharisee. The Pharisee comes to God in prayer and he could hardly hold back how great he was in his own eyes. Look, God, at all these great deeds. Look at all these merits. Look at all these good things that I've done. I'm sure this must count for something. And the publican comes with nothing in his hands. No merits. No claims, no excuses, no explanations, no comparisons. He says, I am a sinner, O God, and I am here pleading for mercy, for you to forgive me and for you to turn away your wrath from me. And that is all I dare ask. I love the correct translation of the New American Standard Bible in verse 13 where it says, The tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. There is an article there that's not in the King James Version. The King James Version says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Here you see an overwhelming consciousness of this man's sin. He sees himself as the greatest of all sinners. And he's saying, in effect, no man in all the world could be as great a sinner as I am. No man in all the world has sinned as much or as weak, as wickedly as I have sinned. I don't know if I should ask God for mercy or not. So he cringes in a corner, and he pours out his brief cry. I have no works to offer. I have no deeds of which I can boast. There is nothing in my life but sinfulness. God, have mercy on me. The sinner, there is no sinner like me. I want to stop again. I want to ask you again, have you ever been convicted of your sins like this? Have you ever thought as I look at my own life and I take inventory of myself, I'm going, I'm not, I am not going to compare myself to that homosexual. I'm not going to compare myself to that adulterer. 
As far as I am concerned, all of the betrayal, all of the sin, all of the lust, everything that is in my heart, no one has ever betrayed God as I have betrayed him. Have you ever felt like that? That's the way a Christian feels in his sin. Let me give you a good example. Paul. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Look at all these people I've sent to prison and to death because they were Christians. I am the worst sinner imaginable. And that is what this publican is saying here. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, let me tell you what else he is saying. In verse 13, he says, God, be merciful to me. In Greek, he is literally saying, God, make a propitiation for me, the sinner. God, propitiate me, the sinner. Now, propitiation is one of the most important words in the whole New Testament, because without which Christ's death would have accomplished nothing, and without which there would be no gospel. So let's look at some of the key passages in the New Testament in which this word, to propitiate or to make propitiation, occurs. Turn, please, to 1 John chapter 2, and I'll read verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours alone, only, but also for those of the whole world. Turn over a couple of chapters to 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, we read, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. One more, in Romans three twenty-three through 25, beginning the middle of verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now, what is so important about that word? The word propitiation describes what Jesus Christ's death on the cross accomplished. And if he had not accomplished this, we would all perish in our sins. One of the most important things you can understand about people is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So that everyone, by virtue of the fact that they are unbelievers, stand under the fury and the wrath the condemnation and the anger of Almighty God. And unless that wrath and that anger are in some way removed, placated, appeased, pacified, that wrath and fury of God will destroy us and send us to hell. And the Bible says that God sent His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand between us and that tidal wave of the wrath of God. And as our substitute, 
He was on this cross, and full force of God's anger beat upon him, so that we, whom he represented, who were standing behind him, would go free and never bear that wrath. He bore it all away. That is what propitiation is. Propitiation is a violent, sacrificial death that turns away God's wrath from those who deserve to be destroyed by it. That is what the death of Christ is all about. And I trust you see now that without propitiation, we have nothing. We would still be under the wrath of God. But on that cross, Jesus took that wrath. He propitiated God. Well, this has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we have closed out our time together today, I would remind you that our desire is to know how this program encourages you in Christ. Now, there are a couple of three ways that you can contact us to provide us with this information. And again, it would really encourage us a great deal if you'd take a moment and let us know how the program is encouraging you in your walk and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how to contact us. Phone number is 408. 408- 8665607 that's 4088665607 our website where you can drop us an email and even learn a bit more about us is reformedheritage.org and then of course you can write to us at PMB that stands for post mailbox number 402 1484 Pollard Road Los Gatos California the zip code is 95032 Now, there is another way you can contact us, and this would be the best of all, especially if you're not involved in a church at this time. Plan on visiting. Let us uh, fellowship face-to-face, as it were. We meet at Lone Hill Church, 2 in the afternoon on Sundays at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org, or by calling 408-866-5607. By the way, copies of the broadcast are just $5. Mention today's date when you contact us, and we'll get a CD out to you right away. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, God bless. (music) 